Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. It's really a charge not just to pastors, but to all Christians as we study God's Word, because that's the source of truth. And people, when they have questions, we want to be able to respond with proper information. Maybe you have a question this morning. If you do, we welcome you this hour to the Bible line. This is an opportunity as people call in. They can ask questions about a challenge they may be facing in their personal life or ministry or church and they'd like biblical counsel, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, locally, the number is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number for our internet listeners, and uh, the internet phone number uh, for those outside of South Carolina is 877, the call letters of our station, WAGP 980. 877-924-7980. We'll get you through as well. Or if you'd like, you can email us here directly into the studio, and it will pop up on the screen your question. The email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to receive it that way as well. Rick, I think we already have our first caller waiting patiently on the air, so let's go to them. Indeed, Pastor, let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. This is David from Choir, and I I took the the test on, on the website for my spiritual gifts, and it came up that my gift was exhortation. And um, I, I I do u- utilize social media quite a bit and post a lot of things, a lot of Bible verses, as many things as I can find. I'm just wondering, how can I utilize my gift of exhortation to further myself in the kingdom of God and to help the Church? Well, it's a good question. Uh, the gift of exhortation... Uh, most people think of it just in terms of encouragement in the positive realm, and they say, well, he's a really encouraging person, so he has the gift of exhortation. But, of course, uh, there's other facets to the gift. Uh, it also involves reproving and rebuking. Uh, but it's done in a spirit of encouragement in terms of pointing people uh, towards Jesus Christ and to the will of God found in the Word of God. One expression of the gift of exhortation, and maybe you're listening and someone's saying, I have no idea what he's speaking about. Well, when you became a Christian on your spiritual birthday, God gave you a spiritual gift, and there are 20 such gifts listed in the New Testament. I do think some were temporary and unique to the New Testament era, but there's at least 16 that are still being given today. Whether it's the gift of teaching or the gift of pastor-teacher or evangelism or exhortation or helps or administration, every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. And one expression of the gift of exhortation in a local assembly is a person who will come alongside and not just uh, give someone maybe in an immediate situation some perspective, 
uh, but also counseling, uh, helping people who have special needs uh, and being able to counsel them with Scripture based on sound doctrine. And so good stewardship of your gift will be to grow in the knowledge of God's Word in every practical realm of theology, whether it's marriage or family or raising children, so that as God brings people your way, you'll be able to give them sound biblical counsel. I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next person who's waiting patiently. Indeed, we do have a listener. Uh, Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning. Yeah, thanks for calling. How can we help you today? Uh, Dr. Brogan, I was just, I want a kind of a a godly man's opinion or a biblical opinion. Uh, I was just things going on in our nation this week with this uh, Dr. Gosnell, the abortion doctor. Um, you know, you're not seeing much of it on the on the primetime media. And then uh, some a gay basketball player comes out, uh, I think it was yesterday, and, and uh, you know, all over the news, the president's calling him to, uh, uh, to you know, to, con- you know, congratulate him, if you will. And it just... Uh, you know, it should be the other way around, I think. And you just wonder kind of where we're at with that. You know, well, I wanted your opinion on it. Well, it's a great question, and I appreciate it. Let me let me just say that the Lord Jesus reminded us that his return from heaven will mimic the days of Noah and the days of Lot. In fact, when the Bible in the Old Testament describes the comings of Christ, and there are two comings of Christ that are described in the Old Testament, the first coming of Christ when he comes as a suffering servant, the second coming of Christ when he comes as the ruling, reigning Lord to judge the living and the dead. And what's interesting is that both times in human history will mimic each other. Jesus came into the world at a very dark time in human history. And the Bible teaches he will come again at a dark time. And Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 compares his return to heaven to the days of Noah into the days of Lot. If you study Genesis 6 through 9, you discover that the days of Noah were days of gross immorality, of uh, sexual impurity. Uh, The days of Lot were days not just of sexual uh, uh, immorality, but days of sexual perversion. Uh, as seen in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so things are changing very, very fast in our nation. The spirit of Antichrist, according to 1 John, has always been at work. That is, uh, Satan, who is the one who ultimately energizes the coming world leader known as the Antichrist, he's still at work in this day. Ephesians uh, 2, 1 and 2 tell us that, that the prince of the power of the air, uh, a term given to describe the evil one, Satan, is energizing the sons of disobedience. So he's crafting this world system to... uh, it ultimately, of course, carry out the plan that he has, and that's to take as many people to hell with him as he can. But homosexuality is an evil. It is an evil. It is a perversion. God calls it an abomination. And I have a uh, sermon on it if someone's interested in listening. And the title of the sermon, you can find it at searchthescriptures.org. It's entitled, Is It Okay to Be Gay? And, of course, the answer is No. Uh, I caught the CBS Evening News yesterday, and the um, the announcer there, Scott Pelley, who's the anchor there for the Evening News, he compared it to a Jackie Robinson experience, where Jackie Robinson, the great baseball player, came out as an African-American, uh, you know, to defend uh, equal rights. 
this is not a Jackie Robinson moment. Uh, being homosexual is not something, is not a way that God has made you. It's a choice that you have taken on. Certainly there are some things can, that can predispose a person to those things, but ultimately it is a choice. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So even if there's a young man who maybe is sodomized as a little boy, and he's very confused and doesn't know how to deal with shame, there's still a choice that takes place at some point that leads a person into the lifestyle of homosexuality. But if it were something that God made us to be, then God couldn't hold us responsible morally for this. And so let me just read a couple of passages because I don't want anyone at all to uh, be deceived on this. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning now in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's premarital sex, nor idolaters. Idolatry in the Bible is anything you put above God. Paul can describe greed as idolatry to the church at Coloss. Idolatry, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, those are male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, anyone can be saved, but the next verse says, in such were some of you. But God saved you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have at Community Bible Church, former homosexuals, former adulterers, former drunkards, who were one to faith in Jesus Christ, and God changed them from the inside out, because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So when this NBA uh, basketball player, Jason Collins, came out yesterday, and the president calls him and he says, I'm proud of you, he is giving a statement of evil. He is giving a statement of evil. What he is saying is evil in the eyes of our God, because God calls homosexuality an evil. And so in Romans 1, Paul says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For what reason? Because men refuse to acknowledge God as God and give him thanks and praise. And then he says, for their women describe the, uh, exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire one towards another, men with men committing indecent acts. So God calls these things indecent. He calls them degrading passions. In Leviticus, he calls it an abomination. And everything in the Old Testament that God calls an abomination is still an abomination today, whether it's mentioned in the New Testament or not, because it's part of God's moral law. So God described bestiality as an abomination in the book of Leviticus. It still is. And this sin is a sin as well. So our president is wrong. He's also wrong on abortion. He uh, voted uh, in favor when he was a senator in, in favor of partial birth abortion, where a baby is partly delivered, an instrument is put up into their brain, their brains are sucked out, so a dead baby is delivered. Uh, there are other ways of doing late-term abortions. The numbers differ conservatively at least 450 babies a year survive an abortion. That is, they're born alive. And of course, this uh, doctor in Pennsylvania, if you can call him a doctor, who's uh, on trial, uh, is a murderer. 
He has let little babies who have been born alive. He's finished the process. Little babies that could have been brought to a ward and taken care of and nurtured. And uh, he's, he's murdered them. Well, listen, it's murder whether the baby is six weeks old in a mother's womb or near gestation. And I hope everyone listening to me knows that Roe v. Wade changed the law and made it a constitutional right for a woman right up until one day before the baby is to be delivered, that it's her right to be to abort it for the health reasons. And health reasons, of course, can be as broad as anything you want. Maybe there's mental distress or financial her financial health will be affected. It's not defined by the Supreme Court. So what I find ironic is in one hospital, uh, a mother may prematurely deliver her baby at six months, and they will do everything in their power to save that little baby, to keep that baby alive so that they will be able to live on their own uh, without the needed aid of machines and other things. In the same hospital, a mother comes in at six months not to... um, uh, to end her, her to end her pregnancy, so they can murder the little baby. So when does the baby become a baby? At the moment of conception. That's how God views human life from the moment of conception. And so, in the Greek New Testament, God describes a baby in the womb with the word brephos. We translate it baby with the same word of a baby who's been born outside of the womb. God views life beginning at conception. That's why the Apostle Paul can say that God called him from his mother's womb. Did he call a piece of blob, a piece of tissue, or did he call a person? He called a person. David recognizes in Psalm 51, 5, that life begins at the moment of conception. So we have evil Democrats and Republicans who are in favor of murdering little babies. It is an awful sin on our land. 56 million babies have been aborted since Roe v. Wade. Before Roe v. Wade, the abortion rate illegally was approximately 28,000 babies a year. Now it's over a million babies every year. Not to mention, since Roe v. Wade has been passed, many of those babies would have grown up would have had their own children. There's at least 100 million Americans that are missing. And the only reason our country has been able to sustain itself with the basic needs that we've had is other people from other foreign countries want to get in so bad. So it is an evil. It's an awful evil. It's an awful plight on our land, both the murder of the innocent unborn babies. And so here the the head of Planned Parenthood and our government and our president is so in favor of Planned Parenthood. And he just spoke this past week about four days ago to a national meeting of Planned Parenthood fearing that we might go back to um, the value system of the 1950s in terms of how women's rights are viewed. And so our president lauded the work of Planned Parenthood. Well, the head of Planned Parenthood in the state of Florida was asked a question by one of their state senators there in front of the whole Florida Senate. And she was asked, well, what happens if a baby is born alive? What should the doctor do? What should the mother do? And the head of Planned Parenthood for Florida said, well, that's a decision between her and her doctor. That's not a decision between her and her doctor. That person is a person. 
So when does a person become a person? You know, the moment they're born, the day before they're born, five days before they're born, or when they're viable. Well, viability, the ability to survive outside of the womb has changed and changed and changed. There's children who've been born 19 weeks after conception who are alive. No, it begins at the moment of conception, and it is our responsibility as Christians to demand that of our government and nothing short of it. And and so when people voted for President Obama, knowing that he was in favor of the murder of little babies, knowing that he was in the favor of the homosexual lifestyle, a lifestyle that is inviting the judgment of God on this nation, they were doing an evil thing. I don't care if you're a Christian. You're uninformed. You should never have done it. I'm not saying that the Republican alternative is always the best. Sometimes I think it's best to, 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 to not vote at all on, on some occasions, to, uh, to punish bad behavior rather than to praise bad behavior. And so if we don't do that, sometimes people don't hear our voice. But listen, we have a president who's lost and a vice president who's lost and scores of people in the House of Representatives and Senate who are lost, who are propagating values that are antithetical to the word of God that God hates. And the destruction of our nation, we are sowing the seeds for it. We're inviting the judgment of God on this nation. God is our only hope. And we better wake up as Americans. Anyway, let me get off that mm-hmm. platform and go to the next question. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or you can email us at tbl at net. Our next listener says, um, is there such a thing as spending too much time in church? On Sundays, his wife, who's a devotional leader, goes to church around 830 and stays until around 5. Well, uh, I would say this much is clear. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day, and that's the day that God's people are to worship Him. Now, technically, a biblical day began from sundown to sundown, but in that 24-hour time frame, uh, God's people are to gather together, and they are in honor of the resurrection uh, to worship corporately together. That is very clear. That's not optional. Now, there are times when people can't do that because of their health. We're not talking about people who can't. We're talking about people who won't. So there is still one day in seven that we set apart in a special way. All 10 of the Ten Commandments still have full application. Maybe their expression has changed. As, uh, someone asked a similar question last week. The fifth commandment, for instance, honor your father and your mother, that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. In the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, it's slightly changed in terms of its application. It's still honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you. That speaks of quality of life and that you may live long. That speaks of longevity on the earth, not in the land because he's moved it past the land of Israel to the whole earth because today God's people are in every tribe and tongue and nation. We don't worship on the seventh day, the Old Testament Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath now dictates that we meet on the first day of the week, and we are to do that. Yeah, there there may be uh, times when uh, someone is at church too much, 
Uh, and it may be in light of your schedule that maybe your wife needs to come home at 2 o'clock or 1 o'clock with you and uh, be with the children and be together as a family. And hopefully she would respect you as the head of the home. There needs to be a head in the home who's not just a financial provider but a spiritual leader. You can't have two heads or you have a monster. If you have no head, it's dead. And so God has said in both Ephesians and Colossians that the man is the head of his wife. And so what she should be asking is, honey, what do you want me to do? You're my spiritual head. This is what I would like to do. And you need to listen to her because she has a whole lot of insight and God put her there as your helper. And she will help you to solve a lot of problems in life and see things that you will never see. But on the other hand, ultimately, unless your decision is against the will of God, that is violating some moral dictate, and when, when government or an individual or a church or whoever it may be asks us to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, then with Peter and the other apostles, we must say we must obey God rather than men. But your husband, if he said, well, listen, we, we need to be with God's people on the first day of the week. The Bible commands this. But we also need to have some time because, you know, I work six days out of the week and and Sunday afternoon would be a good family time and a time for both you and I together to build into the lives of our children or into each other's lives or whatever the setting may be. And, and I think uh, we need to be at home by one o'clock. And if that's what you decide, your wife should say, amen, husband, you're the head. And I trust God's leadership through you. And uh, we need strong spiritual leadership. Where does a child learn to respect the police officer, the teacher in school, church leaders, government leaders? Where does he learn that? He's supposed to learn it in the smallest microcosm of life. That's why God put a head who's the man, and he's put a woman who submits to his leadership because that's where the child learns it. But now as the family breaks down or we've gotten so smart and we think we're brighter than God and we say under the guise of women's rights, well, the man's not to be the head. I didn't say a dictator. A loving leader, he's to love his wife as Christ loved the church, but nonetheless, he's still the head. But we're too smart for that today in our egalitarian theology. And so as the family breaks down, you know, it's it's turmoil. Kids are rebellious. One of the marks of the last days that the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy, it tells us what it will be like in the last days. And one of the marks is that children will be disobedient to parents. If that's not fast becoming a description of this society, I don't know what is. Let's go to our next caller. All right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brody. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, thanks for calling. How can I help? Uh, I've heard you on several occasions uh, speak to uh, Christians uh, saying that, you know, we, you know, we'll, we'll come to church on Sunday and we'll hear the message and we'll say amen but then we'll go home and feed on on the filthy movies and television programs, etc. I know uh, what Job says uh, uh, where when he said, you know, I've committed not to put any unclean thing before my eyes. But I was wondering if you could, and, and I know, don't get me wrong, I know it's a sin, but I was just wondering if you could give me some scripture verses that would uh, support that in the sense of... Uh, um, not, you know, like watching stuff or, you know, 
violence or, you know, sexual immorality, et cetera? Well, it's a good question. Maybe a good starting place. There are many that come to mind, but let me give you one to think on. This is found in Philippians 4, uh, 8 and 9. And the apostle Paul has been describing uh, how our hearts are to be filled with thanksgiving to God. We're not to be gripers, but we're to be thankful people. And then he says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So the kind of things that our mind is to fixate on are things that are honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, of moral excellence, things worthy of praise. And if a television show doesn't meet that criteria, it doesn't matter what the world rates it. Things that today are rated as R were rated as X when I was a child. Man is always lowering the standard. And again, the Bible teaches us as we move into the end of the age, to the return of Christ, as we approach those final days, men's hearts will grow cold, Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, and sin will increase. So Proverbs says, watch over your heart with all diligence, because out of it flow the very issues of life. So we're to guard our hearts And we're to fill our hearts with good things, with things that are praiseworthy. And so that's where it begins. And we live in a day of moral compromise. And sometimes I hear preachers telling me about the movies they went to. I mean, just some sermon that's being preached and you hear it on the radio. And like, what are you doing watching that movie? You know, some R-rated movie. Um, And making a biblical example or some illustration from it. That's just folly. You know, and that's feeding the lukewarmness of the day that we live in. And so I think of another text in 1 Corinthians 6, and the apostle is describing literally physical sexual immorality. But he reminds the church of Corinth that when someone is sexually immoral, if they are a true Christian, they're carrying God, the Holy Spirit, with them into that sin. Why? Because their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The same is true with the mind. And so Jesus spoke not just of literally physical adultery, but also anyone who looks at a woman to lust at her has committed adultery in his heart. And so if you feed on filth, your mind will become filthy. And if you feed on filth long enough, your mind and body will act out the things you're feeding on. And don't think that you can avoid those things. Men who view and feed on pornography, eventually become sexually immoral people. It is impossible not to because his proverb says, as a person, as a man, thinks in his heart, that's what he becomes like. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, very good. Um, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Uh, We finished last week's program with this question, and you asked that that we bring it up again so we give it a little more time. And uh, Bill from Concord, New Hampshire asks, to whom was Jesus referring in John 19.11? Yeah, I remember it came in right at the end with about a minute less, so we didn't really have a chance to address it. Uh, John 19, just to set the context here, uh, he is uh, before Pilate. And um, let me back it up just a little bit. Uh, the, the Jews come to Pilate and they say, we have a law. And by that law, he referring to Jesus, 
ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Uh, By the way, whenever Jesus had the opportunity to defend his innocence, he never did. Now he answers some of the questions, but when it comes to defending his innocence, he never does. And there's a reason for that. Isaiah the prophet predicted that this is precisely what Messiah would do. In Isaiah 53, it's written 700 years before Christ. And it's like an eyewitness. 700 years ever before Jesus leaves heaven and becomes a little baby in Bethlehem. Um, He describes the events of his life right up to his death and his resurrection. And of Messiah, the Bible said that he would be silent like a sheep before his shearers. So Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And then Jesus answered. He said this, you would have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. And by the way, that is still true. Uh, God, according to Romans 13, is the author of all government of all authority. And so when Paul addresses the church at Rome, uh, he reminds us that we are to be respectful of authority. And of course, the one who's in leadership is Nero, who was an evil man. He eventually uh, burned the Christians in the first century. He, He wanted to do a rebuilding project in the city of Rome. There was some slums there. And so he thought, well, if I can't clean it up, I'll burn it up. And so he burned it. And the people rebelled, and so he finally accused the Christians. You know these people talk about calling fire down out of heaven. They're the ones who did it. And then to make an example of the Christians, he literally dipped believers in oil and made them human torches in his garden. And it's in that kind of atmosphere that Paul says in Romans 13 and verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, this verse has certainly been misused. Hitler had his men quoted in the German churches. So as a motivation for the people to basically sanction his evil of killing six million Jews, that they were not to cooperate with the Jewish people. Of course, whenever the law is contrary to God's law, the Bible is clear. We must obey God rather than men. But Jesus makes it clear, as Paul echoes in Romans 13, 1, you have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Now, who delivered the Lord Jesus up to Pilate? Well, it was Caiaphas. He was the high priest. Now, Judas delivered him to the Jews. They brought him to Caiaphas. There are six trials that Jesus has before the crucifixion, three that are religious, three that are civil. Uh, Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, those were the three religious trials. They all took place before he was brought to Pilate. And then Pilate sends him to Herod and Herod back to Pilate for the final trial. But what's interesting here is that the one Caiaphas who delivered him up to Pilate has the greater sin. Why is that? Well, it doesn't mean that Pilate was not guilty. Peter reminds us in Acts 2 he was very guilty. 
Uh, and by the way, what took place on the cross was not escaping the sovereignty of God any more than the appointment of Pilate. It happened, the Bible says, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's what Peter says in Acts 2, and he echoes the same truth in 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, that this was planned of God. It's prophesied all the way beginning in Genesis 3.15 through the book of Malachi that when Christ comes, he's coming to die. That God will use the evil of men to accomplish redemption, salvation, a substitute who will die in our place, taking the very punishment that we should take forever in that awful place called hell. But nonetheless, Pilate, who's responsible The fact that the one who delivered has greater sin doesn't mean that Pilate has no sin. It means he has at least lesser sin. But why does Caiaphas have a greater sin? Because the office held by Caiaphas carried more weight than the office held by Pilate. Why is that? Because Pilate dealt in the secular realm. Caiaphas dealt in the spiritual realm. And Caiaphas was a worldly, man-pleasing, self-seeking, self-appointed type of fella who uh, pontificated on spiritual knowledge that was false. And he led the people not towards God, but away from God. He was dealing with the souls of men and women. And that is a far greater sin than what Pilate had done. And so for that reason, Caiaphas had the greater sin. Good question. Let's go to the next one. I think someone's on the line waiting. Well, they were. We're calling them back All now. Right, that's uh, fine. Hopefully, while we're doing that, I'll go ahead and give the numbers again. 525-1859. Toll free, 877-924-7980. Let's, or, uh, let's answer this one here from Athens, Alabama very quickly. They're holding. They, it'll right. only take me a minute. What bi- study Bible would you recommend? There are many good ones out there. Ryrie Study Bible, the Thompson Chain Reference Bible, the Open Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible. So there's a number of good ones out there, and, uh, and most of them are offered in a number of different translations. All right. Let's go to that live caller now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Brother Carl. Hey, good morning. How can I help you? I just come on the radio, and I, I don't know if anyone called in about this, but on yesterday, uh, this NBA player uh, who played in the NBA for about 14 years came out to announce he was openly gay. And one NBA analyst, who I believe is a devout Christian, took a stance with the Word of God that not only homosexuality but adultery, any uh, sexual immoral uh, act is ungodly as sin. And the backlash that has come from from the media to this guy, and I just want to get your take on that. Yeah, someone did call earlier, but let me comment again, uh, because there are many people who have just tuned in since that first caller. I think that was the very first call of the day. Um, No, obviously, uh, what our president said that he did a brave thing. Uh, No, uh, he is, uh, when our president said that, our president endorsed an evil thing. Um, and so it is unfortunate that this basketball player, maybe some think the first of many uh, pro athletes who will now come out to admit that they were openly homosexual. Uh, God calls homosexuality as an evil. I don't, I hadn't heard of the brother who went to the defense of God's word, but good for him. Uh, unfortunately, what's happening in our day is they are making this an equality status, uh, they're making this an issue of equality. And so uh, I heard a lady last night who's running for a local office, and she was asked about gay marriage, and her answer was, I believe in equality. Well, I do too. 
but I also believe that some things are morally wrong. And um, what we tend to do, though, as heterosexuals is we point the finger at homosexuals and we talk about how bad their sin is. But may I remind people who are listening that there is a progression in Romans chapter 1. Three times over, God says he gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. And it's a picture of when God lets a nation go. It's a picture when God abandons a people. Uh, This nation was blessed of God because this nation, as at, at its core founding, had men and women who feared the living God. And they wanted this nation to represent Judeo-Christian values. We have abandoned that. We have said we're smarter than God. We don't need God any longer. Um, We take his name more in vain than we do in prayer. And we're living in a day now where God is giving them over. And heterosexual immorality always leads to homosexual immorality. And so there was a, a woman this past week, who taught for 19 years in a Roman Catholic school. And that Roman Catholic school, when they found out that she was living with her lesbian roommate, fired her, this gym teacher. And all these students came to her aid. And the Roman Catholic Church, good for them. They had some spiritual spine Uh, some spiritual steel in their spine. They said, no, listen, our teachers are going to reflect what we teach. And we teach that homosexuality is sin. Where do they get that? They get it from the word of God. So they had all these students who came in protest to the gym teacher's uh, defense. And the, the line was basically the same. The line was, our generation sees no problem with people who want to be gay. Why is that? Because this generation has no problem with immoral heterosexual sex. And so if you are immoral as a heterosexual, you will quickly endorse and defend a homosexual lifestyle as well. For a number of reasons. One, it makes you feel better about your sin. But number two, the more you engage in any kind of immorality, the more calloused and insensitive your heart becomes. And so that's what this generation has done. You know, my daughter, when she was at Clemson, and this was seven or eight years ago, she's uh, training to be an RA or an RN, whatever they call them now, the head person on the dorm floor. So there's about 50 people in the room. And the person doing the training is giving sensitivity training on on how to, you know, basically endorse the homosexual lifestyle. And so the person doing the training wanted to know if anyone in this room was opposed to homosexual homosexuality on moral grounds. And my daughter was the only one out of 50 students who stood up. That's the day we're living in. That's this generation. Now, After she stood up, two or three students came up and said, I should have stood up with you. But I I just felt, you know, embarrassed. Or Why should we be embarrassed over what's true? But this is where this generation is going. It's headed to hell very, very fast. And as God's people, we need to stand up. One of three things is going to happen in this world. We're either going to go into another dark age. There will be an awful time in human history in which to live. 
or God's going to send a massive revival where tens of millions of people are converted or Jesus is coming back. And it appears to me that the stage is being set for the latter in light of all that is taking place in Israel and all that is taking place in the moral realm, not just in the United States of America, but across Eastern and Western Europe as well. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us, as this person has, to tbl at net. Why, they ask, are there so many seemingly good, sincere people who seem to love the Lord, yet are deceived by heretical doctrines? Well, um, you know, there are some doctrines that are damnable, and then there are some doctrines that aren't an issue of salvation, whether you go to heaven or hell. Uh, Some people have different views on how we should understand the Lord's Supper how often it should be practiced, what should the actual physical elements be like, and so forth. You can hold to differing opinions on that. That's not a salvation issue. A heretical doctrine would be a doctrine like, I deny the virgin conception of Christ. That's heresy. A heretical doctrine would be, I deny the doctrine of the Trinity, that we believe in one God who coexists in three co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, Those would be doctrines of heresy. Uh, Someone who says, well, Jesus rose from the dead. You know, he's rising in our hearts, but he didn't literally, physically, actually rise from the dead. That's a doctrine of heresy when you deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. Or people today speak of the second coming of Christ. Well, you know, Jesus is coming back, not actually, literally, to judge the living and the dead. But, you know, society will get more Christianized. And in that sense, the spirit of Jesus is coming. Those are heresies. And so people who embrace outright heresy, for the most part, are people who've never been saved. They don't love the Lord in the way the Bible would say to love the Lord. How can I say that? Well, for a couple of reasons. In First uh, Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised or understood. So a natural man, what's a natural man? Well, it's the way we are coming to this world. Uh, Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. And so until a person is born from above, Jesus said it three times, you must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. It's not enough to have a physical birth. Jesus said you must be born again to see, to understand, to perceive the kingdom of God, and then a couple of verses later, to enter the kingdom of God. So people can't really understand the dynamics of God's kingdom until they have a spiritual birth. And that's why, you know, all these young people at this Catholic school are defending the lesbianism of their teacher. Why? Because they have natural minds. And to say that homosexuality is a sin is foolishness. It's bigotry, they would argue. We're not bigots. You evangelical Bible-believing, fundamental-thumping Christians, you're, you're bigots. But we're, we, you know, we understand that this is an issue of equality. No, um, what you are showing is that you are showing you are lost because a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. But then he says, but Allah, it's a very strong, contrastive word in the Greek New Testament, but. He who is spiritual 
appraises all things, yet he himself is understood by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we should instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So Paul is saying a spiritually born person, he's not understood by the people of this world. They think more and more we're bigots, especially as the society hardens itself towards God. They will reject more and more biblical standards. So, you know, now we had 80,000 people last week in Denver smoking their pot at a big pot in. That's evil. You know, you say, where is that in the Bible? It's called sorcery. The Greek word is pharmakia. We got our word pharmacy from it. When people engage in the illicit use of drugs, they are engaging in pharmakia, in sorcery. God calls that an evil, and he says in Galatians 5 that people who live like that have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, proof positive they've never been born again. But when you have this second birth, you receive the mind of Christ. What does that mean? It means you begin to understand spiritual truth. Someone asked me recently, is it possible to reject the virgin birth and be a true Christian? And I said, yes and no. They said, that sounded, sounds political. It's not. I said, let me explain. I said, some of my children at a very young age received Christ. Five, six, seven years old, they had asked Jesus Christ to be their personal Savior. If you had asked them what a virgin was, they they wouldn't know because they hadn't learned the facts of life yet. So they didn't know what the term virgin meant. But when they did, and when they learned what the Scripture says, they embraced it. And so if a person grew up in some liberal, uh, Christ-denying church that rejected the virgin conception of Christ, then they were converted soon after they were converted because they have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? It means they have a new capacity to think after God's thoughts as their minds are renewed through scripture. So the Bible says in Romans 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your minds. And so as your minds are renewed, as you soak your mind in truth, thy word is truth, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. The way we are to be set apart is by being in the Bible. That's why God calls his Bible food. He uses food terms to describe it, bread, milk, meat, honey. Jesus said in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. I've already had one meal this morning. I'm planning to have two more. I don't typically, unless I'm fasting and praying before the Lord, think about going a day without food. Well, in the same way, Jesus said you shouldn't think about going without spiritual food, namely the word of God. And so when someone has the mind of Christ, they're baby Christians at first, but as they start growing, the way they think about life and morals and essential doctrines changes. So I would just say to you that someone who's embracing heretical doctrine as a way of life doesn't love the Lord yet. Uh, They may be Christianized, but don't really embrace Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Listen, um, according to a Gallup survey that just came out, 82% of Americans say that they are Christians. Over 90% of Americans celebrated Christmas this past year. I doubt if Jesus returns today that 90% of America will go to heaven, especially in light of he said, wide is the road, broad is the gate that leads to destruction. Many are those that are on it. Small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life. 
Few are those who find it. And the context of that verse in Matthew 7, 13 is not Jesus comparing Christianity with the other isms of the world, Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism, but with people who say, I'm a Christian. And when Jesus takes all the people who say they are Christians, he said the reality is many of those who say they are Christians, they are on the broad road that is leading to destruction, to hell, to eternal judgment. So I think some of your friends who embrace these heretical doctrines, you've assumed they're believers. You shouldn't assume that. And I think if you ask some probing questions that would pull back the veneer, you'd find out very quickly they're not. To help you to do that, go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to the presentation. Would you like to have God as your friend? That will help you in witnessing to some of these people. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next caller would like to know your opinion on the upcoming election. Should Christian Republicans vote for Mark Sanford, or should they not vote in protest of his actions? It's an issue of personal conscience. You know, Mark Sanford has repented of absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Our former governor, you know, left his wife, got engaged now to another woman that he's going to marry, and he's repented of nothing. He's doing an evil thing. And... Um, so, you know, are we going to reward evil? Uh, we keep doing that, my friend. And, uh, the evangelical church will have no voice whatsoever. None. Why should they listen to us if we're going to reward evil? And there is a time to punish evil. And sometimes it means not by voting for an evil worldview as the opposing candidate clearly has, who came out last night in the debate, which I watched, clearly in favor of homosexual marriage, clearly in favor of abortion as a woman's right. I could never vote for such a person, never would. But I'm afraid what we're going to do, a lot of evangelical Christians, is we're going to reward bad behavior. And what is that going to do? It may in the short run produce what we think is a good result. But in the long run, it's going to produce a negative result because if Mark Sanford is reelected through evangelicals and they're going to be the kingpin in this whole thing, what we've basically said is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you want to leave your wife. Listen, his first wife has not remarried. She may have divorced him, but she hasn't remarried. He should be seeking reconciliation. Had he, when he went on national TV, talked to, hadn't talked about his soulmate, and said, listen, what I did was evil, and I'm going to do everything I can to fight for my marriage. And he didn't do any of that. He's repented of nothing. He's talking about forgiveness. He hasn't repented. He hasn't repented. What a terrible example to his own children. And the promises, he's, he's basically saying to his kids, it, it doesn't matter. I hope his kids sort it out. I, I've been impressed to pray for them, and I have. And I hope they sort it out, but it won't be because of him. It will be in spite of him. But if we do what's right, I think in the long run, we may see a better result. This is only going to be up for the short time. It's an appointment deal. In 2014, the seat's going to be up again. I'd much rather have an evangelical in there who represents and stands for what we believe. And if they're not an evangelical born-again Christian, at least a moral person who stands for what we believe. But the world is throwing up all over evangelical Christianity because we have no backbone anymore. And we are becoming lukewarm 
and we stand for absolutely nothing. And that's the problem. So, no, I can't vote in this. I, I, I'm off by about a half a mile where they draw the line. Uh, so I can't vote. But if I had the chance to vote, I would not cast a vote for either. That's just me. I'm speaking my conscience. You have to do what God leads you to do before the Lord. But I can't imagine that God would ever lead someone to vote for this Democrat who openly is in favor of the murder of innocent babies and openly in favor of homosexual marriage. Don't tell me God's leading you to vote for her. Maybe not to cast the vote for either, but don't tell me that you say, well, not to vote for Sanford is to vote for her. No, I don't think so. I think it's punishing bad behavior by not voting for Sanford. But I certainly wouldn't vote for her. Okay. Do you think uh, you can answer this one in two minutes or less? A woman I used to attend church with decided she didn't want to be married anymore. So she separated from her husband and eventually divorced him. The strange thing is they both still go to the same church. Do you believe the church should exercise church discipline on the woman for divorcing her husband regardless of the reason? Of course, and the church should be trying to do everything in their power to help that marriage to get back, to reconcile with each other. The Apostle Paul said this, he said, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is alive, she is joined or married to another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She is free from the law, so she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. No, what she did was evil, and the church should have held her accountable. They should have exercised church discipline on her, and uh, they didn't. Sometimes these things slip through a church, and they're they're unaware of it. But if they are aware of it now, they, they should be doing everything they can to try to fix the marriage. Now, there are times when there should be planned separation. I'm not in favor of some woman being beaten black and blue by some man. And there are times for a planned separation with a view towards reconciliation, but not the sanctioning of divorce. I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. Well, we're out of time for today. Those friends that are listening, we're opening up a new campus By the grace of God in Bluffton, if you're in a good church, we don't want you to leave. But if you're in a church that doesn't hold to basic biblical truth where you're being taught the word of God, you need a church home. Consider if you live on Hilton Head or Bluffton, you can come to our Buford campus or you can come to our new campus in Bluffton behind the uh, BMW dealership opening up Sunday, June the 9th. That might be a campus that you'd want to come to. We'll be one church meeting in two locations. The pulpit will go live from Buford into Bluffton uh, every Sunday beginning June 9th. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day.